This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Megan Rogers, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Now, I know this is audio, but Megan is wearing my favourite T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what does it say, Megan? It says, what are you reading? That's exactly right. And if you want a what are you reading T-shirt, just go to our website, betterreading.com.au. Now, Megan began her working life as an editorial assistant at Allen & Unwin before she moved to the State Library of Victoria and worked in marketing. I mean, you've got a bit of an all-rounder kind of experience for a writer, haven't you? Oh, yeah, I have. I've been really blessed with different opportunities and I think that in my early life I was really looking at developing a career that, you know, like I was helping my family out with different things and I wanted to build a foundation, you know, for the future. And so, you know, I did, <laughs> uh, I did have friends who were artists at the time, you know, telling me that I was selling my soul. People don't like marketing much, that's for sure. Oh, that's right. They don't. But I think for me, because I was working in the arts, mostly in education, I just loved it, especially because at the library, you know, my job was to tell everyone about the free services that we offered and that to me, you know, there's yes. no better than that. There's no oh, better. absolutely. And I'm in marketing, but, you know, I'm telling people um, about books and reading and that's got to be great. I'll tell you, this is a, a funny story and I'll tell it to you quickly. Years and years ago, I was, I was at the Adelaide Writers' Festival and J.M. Kurtzia was there because, you know, he's South African and he lives, I think, in Adelaide. And I was seated next to him because at the time I was working at Random House and I was the head of marketing and we were chatting and he was saying, he then said to me, I don't know whether he knew what I did there or not, but he said to me that the people he loathes the most in the world are marketing people. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, no, oh, no. I was eating my lunch and I'm thinking, oh, God, don't tell him what you do. Don't tell him what you do. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I think that for so long <laughs> marketing has been a bit of a dirty word, but for me, yes. it's for, for me it's nothing more than communicating something you're passionate about. And so if I have worked for libraries or for publishers or for books or even, you know, when you're talking about your own writing, I think for me it's all about communication and for me Communication is storytelling. So I agree. I agree. Me, there's not that much difference between what I do if I am in marketing and what I do as an author because it's all about communicating and all about stories. So, you know, if we loathe marketers, then, you know, we probably loathe anyone in communications. <laughs> well, and also I think particularly in our industry, if you loathe marketing, you're not going to find out what to read. Because no one's going to tell you what's out and what's available. <laughs> I know where the reputation comes from, but it's yeah, not yeah. us. Of course it's not us. No, no, it's never us. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been. No. 
Uh, so Megan, in 2014, Megan finished a PhD in creative writing at RMIT, which resulted in the book Finding the Plot, A Maternal Approach to Madness in Literature. I want to ask you about that, even though that's not the book we're talking about today, but I'm curious. She also has a Bachelor of Arts Science, a Diploma of Professional Writing and Editing, a Graduate Diploma in Professional Communication, and a Master's of Marketing. Okay, so uh, needless to say, I was thinking I'm going to be very, very underskilled to talk to Megan. Anyway, but here I am. Her debut novel, The Heart is a Star, is an engrossing, lyrical and powerly absorbing novel about the complicated and beautiful messiness of life and the way in which we navigate it. Can I just say, or people reading debut fiction at the moment, particularly Australian, is trending very, very well. However, I and I'm a social media, I mean, I spend a lot of time on the phone because of what I do. I can't tell you how many people have read your book and loved it and are recommending it to other people. They're strangers to me. I just see it come up on all my feeds. <laughs> and so I took a screen grab the other day and I sent it to Jane, who works with me. I said, Jane, are we doing anything with Megan? Because <laughs> everyone is raving about this book. Everyone oh, is. It made me cry. <laughs> I yeah. still really, I still get really emotional about it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so kind. Everyone has been so generous, and I, it's still like I, I was talking to someone the other day, and I still inside my body feel like you know a working mum of two young girls who's trying to write a book and has no idea what she's doing. That's how I feel inside my body. So, mm-hmm. when I see people enjoying it. Um, you know, and and the variety, I think, of people who are enjoy, enjoying it, like from industry people to readers to, uh, you know, people who identify as men and women and, and across, you know, the board, it still surprises, <laughs> it still surprises yeah. me. Um, yeah. So tell me how it was born. Tell me, because, um, you know, there is a school of thought out there, and you've probably heard this, that writing classes, this is not what I believe because it hasn't been my experience, but there is a school of thought out there that talk about the fact that there's, you know, that writing classes and studying writing and studying creative writing can be detrimental to creativity. Mm-hmm. But in your instance, I don't think in your case, <laughs> I don't think that's happened. Oh, that's very, very kind to say. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where every single writer and every single person is different. Yeah, and of course. Our, you know, what affects our writing and our creativity is not only different for each person, but it's different for each stage of our life. And I think that's, I guess, the tr- my truth was that mm. uh, in, in part, to be completely honest, I think that I did lots of courses across the board because I felt like I wasn't enough as I was. Mm. Uh, And that goes for marketing, goes for communications, goes for Mm. anything. You know, I believed in myself that I needed lots of bits of paper to make myself feel okay. Mm. And, you know, I was that real stock standard student who always liked to get good marks and work really hard and things like that. And I learned later on in my life that I think a lot of that came from a place of not enoughness. Mm. And so it wasn't really until I hit you know, my late 30s, early 40s, when I started to unravel that a little bit. And interestingly, when I started to unravel where that came from, it sparked 
more of my creativity. So by understanding why I was studying those courses and where that came from for me as a human and a and a character and you know someone who has faults and foibles and um is multidimensional. Uh when I started to understand myself more, I started to unlock and kind of crack open my creativity more. And I think, you know, I'm a I really believe that we can only kind of meet people as deeply as we've met ourselves. And that's a relationship quote, but I believe it to be true as a writer. So I believed that I couldn't meet characters um, until I had met myself. And so for me, that could only come after I had done those courses. And in many ways, that's more about my stage of life than the courses per se. But I think that it was... Uh, my journey. And in many ways, it couldn't have really been any other journey. Mm. All right. So tell me, was it then that the heart is a star was formed, I guess, over the years? Had you been thinking about this book from before you started studying, before you started thinking about writing? Was that something that has sat with you for a long time? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that often, you know, when you ask a debut how long it took them to write the book, part of you wants to say my whole life because you're magpieing all these little bits of pieces of information and using them. So what I would say is that the the topic and the plot and the heart of it, so to speak, (laughs) didn't come about until uh, I had kind of been pulled through the ringer a bit of you know, early motherhood and losing people I love and all those types of things. But bits and pieces within the novel uh, did, you know, come from my years of writing and observing and and things like that. So I would say the this kind of structural overarching things only came, you know, after I really sat down and started writing it. But little bits and pieces in there that I used as metaphors and and as characterization and so forth, they were picked up and and you know magpied along the way on like train journeys and and meetings and and so forth. So yeah. so it wasn't something you wrote a couple of thousand words and packed in a drawer and thought I'll come back to this or I'll think about this. When you decided to write it, did you just, that's it, I'm doing it and I'm doing it now? Yeah, in some ways. I The, the catalyst of it was, you know, when my, my little girl, I know that, you know, people have heard this story before, but my little girl got sick and I went to the Royal Children's. You know, I was sitting in the cafeteria afterwards and, and an anaesthetist came up to me and started talking to me. And so that interaction when my youngest was a few weeks old and very unwell, that was mm. the catalyst for the opening line and the main character. But I didn't really know much of the plot then, even though, you know, I knew that this particular anaesthetist who had spoken to me was feeling uh, very much in the sandwich generation where she was caught between growing children and ageing parents and she was looking after both ends and she wasn't feeling like she was doing a good job of anything. So I had that. So that was when my daughter was, you know, what, seven, nine weeks old. And it did, to a certain degree, sit there for a couple of years just because I just didn't just didn't have the headspace. It was, you know, early motherhood with two kids, especially a baby and a toddler, is it, it's pretty overwhelming. And so uh, I would say that I kind of thought on it here and there. I was uh, getting my first nonfiction book out, which was the result of the PhD, so I was finishing that. And then it wasn't until kind of, you know, just before lockdown and the beginning of lockdown that I really wrote with a fever. And and in many ways, you know, that came from, you know, seeing um, women during, you know, the beginnings of, of COVID and what was happening there. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of were giving up 
careers to do remote learning or for their husbands to work and the perception of all that. They were in caregiving roles in nursing homes like my mother was uh, and in nursing and healthcare roles and the the toll that was taking on them as well. So, you know, I think a big part of me wrote it in response to the incredible pressure that I was seeing women under during that time and the beautiful relationships that I had with women allowed me to have quite intimate conversations about what was going on with them. I remember talking to, and and I won't name her um, because I don't know if she wanted (laughs) me to tell her story, but I'm going to tell it. I remember talking to so many writers during COVID, of course, Um, and, you know, it changed our life. Like in the past, we didn't ever do podcasts remotely because no one did and you had to come into the office. So there was loads of positives. And now on Zoom, we have that wonderful access. But I remember um, speaking to a a very uh, renowned Australian author and she was talking to me about being at home. And I said, well, it can't be that different. This is, I'm naive here because I don't have children. I said, it can't be that different for a writer, right? Because, you know, it's a solitary job and you're often at home, uh, you know, at your desk or writing. And she said, well, it is different because my husband's working from home. My children are schooling from home. And who do you think makes lunch? Who do you think? And she said, so her role only increased. That's right. Mm. That's right. And and I think a lot of us were feeling that during that time. And it was constant. And I think the other thing too is that a lot of creatives and writers, you know, I am quite introverted. I'm a strong INFJ and always have been. And I, I do need quiet, you know, reflection time. And so during, you know, when we were in Melbourne, especially during during those lockdowns, there was no space. <laughs> and sometimes it was just hard to even kind of breathe, let alone be creative. And so you're right, you know, it was it was 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week when you were almost at the beck and call. That's how it felt sometimes of kind of everyone around you. And, you know, in some ways I loved, you know, having my kids at home and and seeing what they did at school was such a gift and a joy. And, and having my husband home as well actually was wonderful because it changed the dynamic and it allowed him to be, you know, around the girls and so forth. But, <laughs> you know, but it was really hard as well. And, and you know, I wrote a lot of the novels sitting in my pantry on the ground <laughs> with the door closed because it was kind of the only space that I could sit in whilst hearing what was going on with the remote learning. And, um, you know, it's fine because there's lots of bread and wine in there. Um, <laughs> so that's helpful. Uh, but it was hard. You know, it was it was a real pressure cooker, I think. Mm. And um, you know, maybe in many ways that's that's a good thing for writing as well sometimes. Mm. I think the book has really resonated with a lot of people, which I think why is why everyone is recommending it on social media. Um, because we all have that kind of experience, whether it's relationships with your children, relationships with your parents. And also too, um, I think a lot of readers are of a generation now where they're reflecting on their upbringing, they're reflecting on parents, they're caring for parents. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think that I've said before how lucky I am to have the women around me that I do. And, And part of that is luck, but part of it is also coming to an a stage and age in your life where you're prepared to be more vulnerable because I think you you can only have as good friends as you can be a good friend. Mm. And I was starting to, for the first time in my life, really take the masks off a bit. You know, I had worked really hard in my career and thought that that would, you know, make me happy or make me feel safer or more stable. And, 
you know, I collected pieces of paper, as you mentioned, and thought that would make me feel more competent and capable, but it actually didn't. Mm. <laughs> and so I was starting to, for the first time in my life, take those masks off and, and tell other women how I was feeling and, you know, some of the insecurities and the anxiety, you know, that I have sometimes, uh, you know, particularly in social situations, and and they repaid that vulnerability with their own stories. And so, you know, I really have spent the last five years for the first time in my life, I think, actually listening, mm. <laughs> you know, really listening to what women um, say to me and, and women of all generations. I do this beautiful uh, yoga class on a Tuesday morning uh, my way and it's run by a woman who, um, you know, she's in the later stages of her life, uh, an incredible woman. And I'm the youngest uh, in the class in my mid-40s and I absolutely adore it. And, again, that was a place of reverent listening uh, and learning and just hearing about the complexities of women's personalities and their lives and the multitudes that they contain. And I think that one of the things that I really, really didn't want to do is fall into the trap of trying to create a female character that people would, in Talking Marks, like. On many, many occasions, I was tempted to sand down certain edges or take things out of the plot um, because I'm like, oh, that's that's a bit complex or that's not how we would usually describe a likeable female character, you know, goodness forbid. Mm. And it took kind of everything in me to go, no, you know, this is this is how Layla is coming to me. This is her story. This is how she's coming to me. And it also, you know, gives me an opportunity to not look away, to not shy away from her truth and the fact that she is being completely honest about her mistakes and the ups and downs of her life, you know, like a lot of the women in, in my life were doing with me. And I wanted to honour the complexities of women's some, you know, long lived lives um, that were being shared with me at the time by honouring the way that Layla's story was coming to me without censoring it and without sanding the edges of it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm a, a podcast addict, <laughs> so I listen to a <laughs> yeah. lot of podcasts. It's because I walk a lot and I've got a dog, yeah, so I'm out and right. about. And I was listening. I think the podcast was The Hidden Brain, which I love. Anyway, they were talking. It was They had an author on there, and I can't remember her name, and she was talking about happiness and ageing. Right. And she was, the studies that they were doing and the book that she was talking about, her own book, is that older women particularly mm. are much happier. Yes. Than others. 
And I was thinking, because I, I reckon I'm at the cusp, right? So I'm older than you, but younger than yes. perhaps the women that she was talking to. I'm in the middle. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it made me reflect, you know, and I remember coming upstairs to my apartment thinking, but why is that? But you know what? A mm. penny has just dropped talking to you. Oh, really? Okay, so I really want to hear this. Yes, because at your age, we're so busy. We're raising yeah. children. Yes. We're in a relationship usually. So yeah. that that is a certain amount of sacrifice. It's a yeah. certain amount of compromise, whether the relationship's good or bad, yeah, those things right. exist. Yeah. You're looking after maybe extended family. You're looking after parents perhaps. Yeah. So your time to be happy is not like it is as you get older. And I think older mm-hmm. women particularly are happier because all of a sudden, and probably the first time in their life, they have more time to themselves. Wow, yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah. yeah. I've just thought that because I love the podcast, true. but I couldn't understand why, but I reckon that's why. Yes, and it's so funny that you say that because the women, the incredible women that I have mm. in my life, you know, especially those in their kind of 70s and 80s, mm. are just the most vibrant mm-hmm interesting women, people, humans, you know, let's, let's, you know, open up a little bit that I have met, you know, they're Mm. just, they're so interesting. And I, and they're so interested. That's brilliant. They are so interested. Yes. They're Mm. so interested. And, uh, you know, I think in many ways I was helped to come to a sense of what the story was about and what I wanted to talk about through talking to them because mm. they were interested mm. and they want they asked the right questions. And I think one of the greatest gifts that you can give a writer, uh, you know, as well as, you know, some solitude is conversations in which you ask them questions about their work so that they can get to a deeper understanding of what it's about. That's such a gift. Mm. Now, I'm not recommending this, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. <laughs> Recently, I spent time in hospital and it was pretty awful because I was quite I'm sick, right? Sorry to hear that. I'm yeah, sorry. okay. No, that's okay. I pulled through and I'm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was terrible, uh, right? But yeah. my family were rallying around. You know, everybody was worried for me. I was yeah. in a public hospital because that's what happens when you go through emergency. Yeah. And all my family wanted for me was to have a private room, private doc, you know, be looked after, blah, blah, blah. But I was in a public hospital in a public ward with four people, with, with three others, right, me and yeah. three others. Yeah. And at one point they did move me to a private room because I think they were sick of all the complaining from my family, <laughs> right? And yeah. what happened? And I I thought that's what I needed too, right? I think it was day three or day four, right? And then I missed the stories. Right. I missed the people. All of a sudden I was in a room all by myself. Yeah. And what happens when you're in a room all by yourself and you're in critical condition? You just think about yourself, right? You overthink everything. So I asked the nurse if it was possible that I go back to the room of four because I wanted to hear other people's stories. Because they were distracting me. They were making me think and everyone has a story. So I was thinking about others and not myself. And I, it's not for everybody, but I needed that at that time. I needed to know your story. I love that. And I'm so glad that you had, can I just say, family around you that were rallying and and yeah, and that you had that around you when you were unwell. So I'm really glad that you, that you had that. 
know? Yeah, yeah, no, I had that. But I also had all these beautiful people sharing yeah. their stories. And it was kind of like a high turnover because most people were only in there for a night or yeah. two. I was there for two weeks. So mm-hmm. I got to hear a lot of stories. A lot of people gave me their phone numbers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in many ways you created your own sense of community. Yeah. You know, I think shared experience is what links us as humans, you know, and, and even if their health uh, experiences weren't exactly the same as yours, there was no. a level of shared experience. Yeah, and, and some people were very young. There was a 20-year-old, yeah. and as I left, she was really having a hard time, and oh. as I left, she said, Cheryl, can I give you a hug? Oh. <laughs> and that's what it's about, though, isn't it? And, and yeah. maybe, you know, maybe... Maybe as we get older and we have more time for ourselves, we also have more time for community because I think that, you know, one of the things that becoming a mum and working more from home and, you know, becoming more entrenched in my local community, which I absolutely love, that, you know, part of that for me was, you know, as the kids do grow up and as I you know, get a little bit more space here and there, little bits and pieces that allows me to do things like work within community groups and join, you know, the other thing I've done is join the local CWA, you know, the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love a bit of baking. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, like your story when you're sitting in yeah. room and, and, of course, my, you know, when I'm standing in the room with the CWA women, I'm not, um, you know, fortunately in, in a crisis situation, but, um, certainly having little slithers of light open up for community, I think is a, a great gift of ageing as well. I think so too. And I think too that you get stories from experience like mm. you. Oh, t- yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And, yeah. and the experience that you have with other people, you know, and my, my book isn't autobiographical as everyone knows and it's not anyone else's story. But, you know, I mean, Helen Garner has this beautiful description of, you know, collecting bits and pieces, writing them down, and then when she has a little gap in a book, holding it up to the light, moving it around, changing it, polishing it up and fitting it in. And I think, you know, that's what so many of us writers do. So I might be, you know, learning how to make scones with, um, you know, some of the women in my area and they might say something about their husband and I'll write that down and I'll never use the same sentence because it's, it doesn't always fit that way. But I will move it around and I'll polish it up as as Helen Garner says and I'll fit it into the little spot where it belongs eventually. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Uh, tell me a little bit about your nonfiction book, Finding the Plot, A Maternal Approach to Madness in Literature. I love the title. Thank you. Um, so I, you know, I have long loved 20th century, what we call women's literature, you know, for want of yeah. a better term, but, you know, Margaret Atwood and Jean Reese and, and, and then earlier um, novels as well, of course, like Jane Eyre and so forth that has the famous Mad Woman, the, the first you know, or the most well-known anyway, not the first one, no, no, no. So for my um, PhD, I travelled to the Bronte Museum and I sat in the room in which Charlotte passed away. And I sat there on the ground and I started to write the book Um, and I sat with the curator of the museum there for for long hours. Uh, She was amazing and I looked through Charlotte and the other Bronte sisters' little, little handwritten books because paper was so scarce that they had to make them so small. Uh, to get an idea of kind of, you know, first of all, whether things had changed all that much in certain areas um, and also to how she felt about Rochester's wife being in the attic and, and how she wrote that kind of other uh, character. 
And, you know, that's how it started. And what I wanted to do was explore women's supposed madness in literature and the fact that for the, the early time, you know, around the Brontes were writing, you know, we could only ever really conceive of narrative closure um, as marriage or death for women, really. That that mm. was the options that were open. And then, you know, in the 19, uh, you know, 60s and 70s in particular, there was a lot of fiction and literature out there that rallied and rebelled against that narrative closure by, uh, you know, quite a, a Thelma and Louise or, a um, you know, a, a surfacing by Magat was a really good idea where there's this kind of wildness to the ending where, you know, women kind of become quite wild and, and rebel against either marriage or death. And I wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore the ways in which uh, women's supposed madness isn't madness at all, but really just the only sane response to a very insane world. Mm. And, uh, you know, to explore the ways in which, because my PhD is in narratology, so I look at narrative structure and, and the way we tell stories. And I wanted to look at the similarities and the disparities between how women created those stories. Um, you know, Sylvia Plath is another good example as well with the Bell Jar. The structures that they used and the storytelling techniques they used to demonstrate and represent women's uh, supposed madness. Oh, and the supposed madness, I think, is also because they wanted to do something that they were not expected to be doing. Mm, yes. You well, know, they chose a path. Yeah. yeah, they chose a path that was different. It's certainly very interesting. I, I want to just comment on women's writing. So really, I mean, I've been in the book business for such a long time. I can't, yeah. know, so it's well over 30 years. I keep saying 30, but I've been saying 30 for 10 years. So yeah. it's longer. And it has changed so much in terms of what people are reading in the time that I've worked in it. And particularly most recently, women's fiction, as you probably have noticed as well, and women's debut fiction um, yeah. are really starting to be noticed. And by that, I mean they're, be they're being read. And they're yeah. being read by largely women, of course, because women represent, you know, almost 80% of the reading population. Right, yeah. And sometimes I wonder um, how that happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a theory. I have a theory that it's oh. social media for all its faults. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I think for all its faults, mm -hmm. right, yeah. what I think used to happen is that the way we found out about books was through review and was through yes. the newspapers and yes. largely male editors, you know, yes. male reviewers yeah. reviewing, you know, um, all sorts of books largely written by males. Yeah. And then once social media came, everybody became a little reviewer, right? Everybody yeah. could write, yeah. read yeah. amazing comments. <laughs> and I think what's happened there is, bang, we've got women up there writing and women are reading it. And, and men are reading it too, but yeah. largely they're doing that. And I just think it's so exciting. It's a really, really great time. I often, if I, you know, um, people often ask me about writing and should they start writing? Well, you know what? Now's the time. Give it a go if you're really interested. Yeah. So and then we get yeah. great books like yours. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting you talk about social media like that. I mean, I've got two daughters and so am well averse and spend many a time thinking about the um, difficulties of social media and, and, of course, you know, the ways in which young people have to navigate these days and the effects and, you know, it keeps me up at night like probably any other mother. At the same time, I also, like you're saying, love the way that it's kind of 
democratized like there's this been this democratization of thinking and content and you know everyone as you say can talk about things now and I would have to say that you know through social media you know whether it's Instagram or Facebook but for me I found particularly Instagram the conversations that women have both in the comment section and through private messaging is incredibly connecting it's Mm -hmm. incredibly intelligent Uh, as you say I think that a lot of women are voracious readers and they want to think deeply about issues that affect both them but also society and humanity at large and you know I think that you know and again you know I'm you know, I, I use that word uh, carefully and lightly because, you know, I do also recognise that, you know, gender is also, you know, it's it's very fluid and there's lots of ways for us to talk about this. So, you know, I'm talking about, I guess, a, a component of that and people who, I, who do identify, you know, um, as women in that way. And the way that readers are now talking about books is, as you say, it's cracking open and blowing open, I guess, a group which previously felt very close and very tight knit. And there's And so excluded. People- they were excluded and for a long time. It actually wasn't that long ago, but no. um, you know, there were times when women were of course running under men's names. And so uh, you know, I'm well aware that I'm standing on the shoulders of women who've come before me and mm. you know the trailblazers of the women who've sacrificed so much of themselves and and their lives to create a pathway for a woman in 2023 to write. We're out of time, Megan. I could talk (laughs) to you for hours. I have enjoyed our conversation so much. Thank you. Thank you. I've loved it as well. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.